This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue on broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi, welcome to Countrywide, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. I'm David Clawton. Today we'll take you to the outback where a young couple took up a dream job, only to find it came with some big challenges. I think we struggled. I, I don't think, I know we struggled. The relationship, it really was just us. So it, I think it put a lot more strain on us because Joel became my coffee date friend my go-to friend when I needed to have a little whinge about something. Joel became everything. It was, it was only Joel and I. So we really needed to work together as a team and I think that did put a lot of strain on us because we didn't have other people to go to. We'll also look at olive oil. There's been a massive shift from consumers to buy Australian and that looks set to continue. And are you worried about chemicals that go into wine? We'll look at something they use called fines and talk to someone who's been cutting back. But first to the crisis surrounding the Australian bee industry and everyone who relies on bees for pollination and honey. At the beginning of the week, the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry confirmed a new detection of varroa mite, a pest that destroys beehives, at Balrenal in the Sunraysia district. And that was after cases had been found before that at Nericon near Griffith in the Riverina. The mites had come down from an infested site at Kempsey on the state's mid-north coast. Michael Condon spoke to the DPI's Chris Anderson about the eradication program and if these latest outbreaks so far from previous cases mean that the varroa mite was out of control in Australia. Yeah, so our our role in in DPI is is, is as the lead agency in implementing the response plan and the goal of the response plan is eradication. Um, So that is still the direction that we are taking. Um, we are certainly uh, recognising the challenges that this presents to us, um, but we we are looking to gather as much information as we possibly can in the light of these new detections. Obviously, almond farms uh, need to start spraying, and sprays and bees don't mix. Um, so we're looking at ways to facilitate some short-term or short-distance movements, if possible, um, with risk mitigation. Um, and we're also going into some of these sites uh, and treating them with um, miticide strips to knock down any mites and facilitate further surveillance. But our priority at the moment um, for this next few days is on surveilling as many of those hives as we possibly can so we can get a full understanding of the potential spread in those red zones. We've also heard that Queensland's instituted a lockdown on, on bees. Is that the case with South Australia and Victoria too now? Um, I'm unaware of what the other jurisdictions have done at this point in time because I've been focused on trying to get um, beehives out of orchards. That decision to allow hives to be moved out of the purple zones in the almond areas, which are just next to the red zone hotspots for Varroa, signalled quite a big shift for the DPI. It's estimated there were 44,000 hives in those surveillance zones surrounding Euston and Balranald in the Sunraysia and Uroli and Nericon in the Riverina, while there's another 30,000 hives in the red zone. They would have been previously destroyed, but that hasn't happened this time. The CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council, Danny Laferve, 
says the change is needed because there's tens of thousands of hives in that area and that's a third of all the bees in New South Wales. Yeah, the DPI have been doing a lot of work to try and get those, those bees moving. They've done a lot of risk assessments. It is a unique uh, detection compared to any of the other zones. It's been a very low mite level, a recent movement on a pollination event where there's unlikely to be uh, transferred to hives. So um, thankfully the DPI have managed to work out a way to be able to uh, destock the orchards and disperse the bees off those areas because it's just too high a stocking rate and density to, to be able to hold bees on. And do we know how many hives are in those purple zones that need to be moving? Uh, it's significant. It's in the tens of thousands, uh, the hives that are coming out of those purple zones. Um, now, they're not just allowed to go willy-nilly. Um, they are in a controlled fashion, so they'll be treated as dan- dangerous contact um, premises. So those bees will be tracked, and they are required to do a higher rate of surveillance alcohol washing on those bees once they move. And do we know how many hives have been destroyed in those red zones in the Sunrage and Riverina regions? At this stage, no hives have been destroyed. Um, so not even the, the infested hives? The, the infested hives have had strips put in them today and, and yesterday and the day before, uh, which will minimise the risk of any transfer of mites. Um, and they're being, until we make a decision about what happens with those red zones. The change in policy is a big relief to Bryn Jones. Kim Honan spoke to the New South Wales beekeeper from Dubbo on the Western Plains as he began moving his 600 hives out of almond orchards at Griffith. What people need to understand here is that the almond situation is a very unique situation. It is unlike anything else. We're talking about a third of the hives um, in the New South Wales apiary. For all the hives in New South Wales are present in these zones and it's simply impractical to leave them in place. If we were to leave them in place, the vast majority of them would die of starvation um, and, and we, we just can't allow that. That would be counter to all of the goals of the, of the current response plan. And how many hives in those red zones? Uh, there's approximately 30,000. Bryn Jones, a beekeeper from Dubbo. Not everyone is happy with the authorities' change of approach. Steve Fuller is one of the largest beekeepers on the north coast of New South Wales and he's been unable to get permits to move hives in or out of control zones. Yeah, this is uh, really a kick in the gut for the rest of the industry. I understand that there's a lot of uh, hives tied up down there on the almond pollination, but there's been a lot of people tied up and commercial beekeepers in other areas that haven't had floral resources and had to feed, and that was part of the order last time. Um, So, look, yeah, there's a lot of resentment going around the industry at the moment. Do you think these changes to the emergency order should really apply to uh, beekeepers such as yourself who have hives in the the purple zones for for pollination in other parts of the state? Well, it it does really feel like it's a double standard. Um, Like, okay, the almond industry got what they wanted, but people around Newcastle and people up at Narnaglana and also Narrabri um, are being, oh, no, you can't do that. So they do feel it's a double standard. The confirmation also that no, none of the infested hives in those red zones have been euthanized now. I understand that part because what they've got to do is actually uh, take samples and, and do a lot of tracing, um, count mite loads and all this. So mite loads will give them an idea of what, um, what they're up against. But um, even if they come down to euthanizing those hives, you're talking thousands of hives, which are going to take weeks to do. And then if they end up being left in the orchards like they were in other places for over three weeks, 
that's another biosecurity um, problem on their doorstep, and that's called small hive beetle. Steve Fuller, President of the Crop Pollination Association of Australia. More than 40 million bees have been euthanised in New South Wales since varroa was first detected, and another 40,000 hives may have to be exterminated in the Kempsey region on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Concern about the control program and its impact on beekeepers has been brewing for a long time. Those who've had their hives destroyed have just launched a class action, seeking up to $140 million in losses and damages from the New South Wales government. Helena Burke spoke to Newcastle beekeeper Dol- Benesh, who says his loss between two and three hundred thousand dollars after the government forcibly euthanized his bees last October. Basically, they arrived to the property to test them before. They found them clean, no varroa. Then they came in. They called me and they said, "We decided to come and kill your bees." I said, "Look, they don't have varroa, so they decided to kill them anyway." Uh, we have applied. We've appealed actually to the Minister of Agriculture. It was denied. Declined. And then they came in and killed the bees. Kempsey has got about 30 to 40,000 beehives within the perimeters of Kempsey. This is like doubling the quantity of the killing of the bees until now. If we've killed until now 30, 40,000 hives, we're going to kill another 40,000. The DPI has gone off track from the beginning to the end. Newcastle beekeeper Dolphy Benesh speaking with Helena Burke about the class action. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industry says it's euthanising hives to try and obtain the most accurate available picture of the mites' location, movement and containment. Meanwhile, the debate about whether to continue trying to eradicate varroa versus learning to live with it is continuing. The economic and emotional cost of the control program to the bee industry is growing. But if eradication fails, the impact will also be huge. Honey production and pollination will take a massive hit. The feral bee population will be decimated. Costs for all sorts of industries will go up. A lot of chemicals will have to be used and the bee population will continue to decline. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Three months after giving birth to her first child, while she was living and working in Catherine, Maddie Staff was offered the job of her dreams. It would take her thousands of kilometres away from her parents, her friends and a shopping centre. But she and her partner, Joel, said yes almost immediately. After a few months into her time overseeing the remote Kimberley cattle station on the NTWA border, she found herself feeling frustrated and trapped in motherhood in a way which she'd never anticipated. I was, I was pretty scared. I think the first initial months were probably easier than the months to come because the first few months you're so trying to settle in, get into what you're doing. You're busy. So the first few months weren't so bad. I think it was probably the third month after being here that I realised that, oh, it's just us. You know, yeah, your mates are a phone call away, but it's not always the same. Um, it's, it can be harder to talk over a phone than it is face-to-face, and I guess you don't really get those emotions. Um, and, you know, you can tell your friends you're fine, but really, you're not always. Is that something that you did a bit, tell your friends you were fine? Oh, always, yeah. I, I was always fine. There was there was nothing ever wrong. Yep, loving life. You know, we really wanted to show that we could do this. Um, to us, it was kind of an opportunity, and we really wanted to make the most of this opportunity and, you know, work, work and show that we were worthy of this opportunity. I think, yeah, also and just trying to show that, yeah, I'm okay and that, yeah, everything's fine, everything's fun. Um, which 
might not necessarily be, but that was kind of what you wanted to do. And yeah, you did, you put on a face to say that, yep, it's a dream. How did your relationship with Joel change considering A, both becoming parents and then B, stepping into this new role together? I think we struggled. I, I don't think, I know we struggled. The relationship, it really was just us. So it, I think it put a lot more strain on us because Joel became my coffee date friend, my go-to friend when I needed to have a little whinge about something. Joel became everything. It was it was only Joel and I. So we really needed to work together as a team. And I think that did put a lot of strain on us because we didn't have other people to go to. And yeah, that, that was hard. I didn't enjoy oh, being inside all day, which I wasn't, but I did miss getting out and about a bit, but it was hard with Wyatt because I couldn't leave him for more than three hours because he was breastfed. Um, you know, I wanted to go to the yards and work cattle because I missed that kind of stuff. I, th I think it came down to one night I was quite upset and I just said to him, I said, I'm, I'm miserable. I, I see you going out and doing everything that I want to be doing and I'm not doing it. And I think in a way, a bit of me wanted to resent Wyatt for that because I felt like I was trapped. In all honesty, all it took was the conversation and we sorted it out within a day. We were like, right, this is what we're gonna do. But I didn't wanna bring up that conversation because I didn't wanna seem ungrateful or that it was too much. So I was happy to just keep sucking it up and going with it. Is it something that you thought when you were pregnant and looking at your relationship and even when you got here with a tiny baby and you just started off, did you ever think that you needed to have it until you had it? No, definitely not. I think, you know, when you're living in town, you've got other alternatives of childcare, friends, um, to take turns with, with the child. And it's definitely something that I never thought we'd have to cross because it, in hindsight, at the time it was going to work. Everything was, yep, go to childcare, we'll both go back to work and we'll, we'll both have him in the night time. But out here, it's obviously not like that. Do you think that the onus to talk about this thing comes down to women. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've spoken to friends and things who I know struggle with topics of conversations that I've had because, yeah, their, their partners don't want to talk about it and women don't know how to say it, I think, a lot of the time. Maddie Staff oversees Nicholson Station on the border of WA and the Northern Territory, west of Halls Creek. She was speaking to Alice Marshall... You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. To fuel now, and diesel is widely used in regional and outback Australia. The Australian Institute of Petroleum's most recent weekly report shows the national average price for diesel is at an eight-month high of over 212 cents a litre, and that's an increase of more than five cents over the last week. Small rural and regional businesses say they're struggling to absorb the rising costs. Madeleine McCosker filed this report. Tambo Livestock Transporter Jared Johnson pays $15,000 a week for diesel and he's worried prices will keep rising. He says now that the national average price of diesel is at a 10-month high, passing on the rising cost to customers is unavoidable. 
I'll look in my business. It might be you know, fifteen thousand dollars a week or something. That on average we're paying for fuel. Um, yeah, I mean, beginning of last year it was probably close to uh, probably eleven thousand dollars or something like that. So it's been a considerable jump. Now it's probably yeah the best part of fifty uh, percent increase since the start of start of last year. The, the current prices. It's something that we have to monitor and um, we have to pass on. And so obviously we can't absorb that kind of kind of hit. In the last six weeks alone, he says prices have risen by thirty cents. Yeah, it's, it's just got to be a flow-on effect, um, mostly right through the supply chain. The, you know, the increase in fuel is going to affect every little, every little part of the supply chain. So at the end of the day, people can expect to pay more at the supermarket for, for everything. The rapid price jumps are putting increased pressure on businesses all over regional and remote Australia that rely solely on freight. Rose Leggett runs a grocery store in Longreach. She says since 2019, freight costs have doubled for her family-run business. Right across the board, that affects everything you do. Um, for a small family business, you're trying to cater for everyone. You've got a lot of staff that really depend on you week to week for their um, income. So there's a lot of facets to it, how it affects you. It's not just what you sell out the front door. Just like Jared Johnson, Rose says passing on the price increases to customers can't be avoided. She says as the cost of living crisis continues to put pressure on people, customers are changing their shopping habits. The majority of people are really looking for specials now, so we've really increased where our specials offer, which, you know, it affects us straight in the hip pocket, no doubt about it. But you've got to try and balance that so that you're taking care of the people in your community because without them you don't have a business. Rose's daughter, Rhiannon Matthews, is a florist in Longreach. She's expanded in recent years from selling bunches in the grocery store to having her own storefront. We are in a position where we can't just go to the local markets and pick a bunch of flowers up. You know, everything else is really tight too, so it affects not only my business as a whole, but everyone else's pockets have only got so much in them. Longreach florist Rhiannon Matthews ending that report from Madeleine McCosker. Australians are falling in love with homegrown olive oil and one company dominates the market. Cobram Estate is responsible for nearly 70% of Australia's annual olive oil production and it's continuing to expand. Sales have grown 20% in the last year and the company hopes to increase that by more than half in the next seven years. Executive Director of Cobram Estate, Leandro Ravetti, says good rain in Bort in central Victoria has helped production this year. It certainly allowed the trees to grow quite well, you know, during the past 12 months. Uh, it was tough from the point of view of the crop that we were having, but it was it was okay for the trees to grow. And that, that growth um, should convert into, into, you know, good flowering and good crop uh, in this coming year. And you've been expanding your operation. Where do you see production heading over the next 10 years and, and how much are you hoping to increase? Yeah, certainly we, uh, you know, we w- one of our growth pillars as a company is to grow, you know, the amount of olive oil that we produce from our Australian operations, and we invested quite heavily in that area in the past 12 months. You know, one of the investments have been the expansion of our mill at board, which we increased the capacity of the mill for the future by 160% for what it was before, making it one of the largest olive mills in the world. Uh, but also we planted. 407 hectares just to the south of our board grove 
um, which is an increase of around 13% of the area planted there. So, you know, you could say near 50% growth you're hoping in the next six to seven six to seven years. Are you seeing the demand from Australian consumers for olive oil? We we do. Look, in fact, you know, I'll give you some, some stats, quick stats. You know, the consumption in Australia have doubled uh, over the past, you know, 15 years. The bulk of that growth came with the growth of the domestic supply. And still, Australian olive oil represents less than 50% of the total consumption of olive oil in, in Australia. Um, let alone keep the process of educating consumers around the benefits of extra virgin olive oil over uh, other lower quality refined oils like seed oils or, or, or just plain olive oil. Looking at overseas, I've been reading that farm gate prices in places like Spain, Italy and Greece are up 70% over mm. a 12-month period. Do you see that prices will do a similar thing here? Um, partly. I mean, one of the Great advantage. I mean, first of all, first of all, I mean the, the, that that sharp rise in prices in in Europe that we have seen over the past twelve months, and even realistically over the past twenty four months, when we looked at the two year cycle, the the, the rise in prices has been more than more than a hundred percent, and that is mainly driven by two things: one, short term tough conditions climatically in the Mediterranean driving low crops; uh, second, more of a medium longer term is the fact that new olive growing, new olive plantings in, in that region of the world has been barely keeping up with the growth of the man. Executive Director of Cobram Estate, Leandro Rovetti, speaking with Eden Henninen. To wine now, of course, and have you noticed some wines are now marketed as vegan? So what's that about? Are meat products used in making wine? Well, the answer is most agents used to refine wine and remove unwanted material are made from animal products. Alexi Christides is a winemaker from Mount Barker in Western Australia's Great Southern Region. He doesn't use any fining agents at all, so his wines are marketed as naturally vegan. Uh, so for us, where we call ourselves minimal intervention winemakers, um, we essentially want to express the fruit with as few inputs as possible so we take fruit we let ferment happen naturally and we don't use any products like fining and we have minimal filtration in our wines as well so can you explain a little bit about what you mean by you don't use finings and stuff like that yeah so there's a myriad of fining products available um, to winemakers to um, clarify wines so removing things like bitterness or astringency removing color or off odors or aromas um we, we take a lot of care with our wine up front so that we don't have to use those products. There's a lot available that you can use, but we will attempt to not use them just to express that full flavour and different flavour and maybe stylistically different. Uh, so fining products will pull different compounds from the wine that aren't necessarily attractive or you don't want them there. Uh, they do that by binding proteins in the wine with a particular fining agent and different fining agents work differently. So, you know, gelatin or isinglass or milk, they'll work differently to copper or PVPP. There's a whole myriad of, of products. So these products like gelatin and milk proteins, are they going to be in the final product? No, so they bind with the compounds you want out of the wine. They drop out of the wine because they're, they're heavier. Um, wine is racked off and generally it's filtered beforehand, so you won't get a trace of those in the wine. So what's an example of a non-animal-based fining? 
non-animal-based fining agent would be something like copper, for example, which is used to remove sort of pongy ferment smells that are based on sulphides um, out of out of wine. Uh, that's a non-animal-based uh, fining agent, but it doesn't work in the same method as, say, gelatin or, or milk or, or egg whites. There are um, commercially available vegan fining agents being made now, so people can use those instead of the animal-based products. Now, I think the difference between vegan and non-vegan wines would be the fining agents. Um, so, you know, fining agents based on fish, like isinglass or gelatin, uh, milk proteins, egg whites, they're all animal-based products. So, yeah, I'd say that'll be the difference. Have you noticed any change in the trends among vegan wines, wines that don't use finings in recent years? Uh, I've certainly seen a lot of marketed vegan wines on the shelf, like more in recent times. Potentially that's a, you know, they're from the bigger guys, so they're the ones generally with their finger on the pulse for what's selling and what's not um, and how to sell wine to people. So I'm assuming that they've got some research that says that's a good idea. So, yeah, I mean... There's definitely more on the shelf. How aware do you think people are that most wines actually aren't vegan? Uh, it's a hard question. I'm not sure. I would, I would imagine the vegans would be aware, um, given they're aware of what they're eating and consuming and all that sort of stuff. So I would imagine they'd be aware. I think the general population probably neither here nor there. So this choice to not go down the finding path, what has that meant for you to not do that? Uh, it makes life harder um, and we have to stick to our guns. We want to express how the wine looks after a wild ferment. We don't want to muck around with it unless we have to. So it just makes life harder. We have to be cleaner. We have to be more um, on top of things. It's, yeah, just basically harder. Alexi Christides, a winemaker from WA. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Have you been to an Australian rodeo? They can be pretty big, but how do they compare with American events? An American reporter is travelling around Australia to answer that question. Dan Galeasso writes for Country and Western magazines, and he bumped into Lucy Cooper at the biggest rodeo in the Southern Hemisphere, Mount Isa. Well, you've got a couple of different things going on that some of the events are a little bit different, not totally different than an American rodeo. And so we don't do uh, steer riding. And we do calf riding, you know, a junior rodeo and, and stuff. And we do mutton busting, which I don't know if they do that here. That's, that's putting the real little kids on a sheep. I have, I, have seen, I have seen something similar to that, but I don't know if we've made it a professional sport as of yet. But you'll see that it's on the beer rodeo. The, the differences and the similarities, this is very similar to uh, Calgary, Calgary. Uh, what would be the Cheyenne and Pendleton Road because of the indigenous presence, partially. Also, I'll be comparing it somewhat to the Crow Indian Reservation up in Montana. Their big industry is a place called Coal Strip. It's coal mining. And they're under, they, that's one of the biggest coal deposits in the world. And so uh, they have Indian rodeo there. They have a powwow. All the teepees are set up. It's a little bit different indigenous-wise, but there's those, those similarities that, you know, are not exactly the same, but make this different. And now that you're doing Indigenous Rodeo, that makes it even more, you know, that's always been a, a thing from what I've read about in the past, that local rodeos and stuff at, at cattle stations would certainly have, you know, local competitions and stuff amongst a lot of the Indigenous guys working there. And out here the prize money is a lot less as well. Yeah. <laughs> we're looking. We're actually standing in front of some... 
bulls at the moment. How are the cattle different? I actually have, I'm going to be interviewing the stock, one of the stock contractors, and that's one of the questions I'll have for him. On the surface, it doesn't look like it. There's a lot of crossbred, some Angus, you know, some Brahma, but it looks like a lot of Angus and a few other, you know, in, breeds that are indigenous now to, to, to Australia. And so, so my guess is, but a lot of this is now bred stock to buck. So those, those really good, good bucking stock are worth a lot of money. And also the stud fees and stuff for them are worth a lot of money. So at some point, maybe in the last, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, stock contractors from here were going to the States, meeting stock contractors there and going, you know what? You've got this famous bull, Bodacious. You know, do you have any, you know, you got to talk about sperm and all that stuff. And that's how more and more of these good bucking bulls here got, got bred as they did in the United States before that. Dan Galeasu, who writes for Country and Western magazines in the US, speaking to Lucy Cooper. And that's it for Countrywide this week. I'm David Clawton. If you're listening on the radio, you can also find this program as a podcast on the ABC Listen app. And there's lots more detail on many of these stories at abc.net.au slash rural. This is an ABC podcast.